The reality is that as Christians we're entering, we're actually already occupying a new kind of cultural space. We're coming to realize that we are viewed as believers more and more with skepticism, even hatred for holding to the word of God and proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, the pressure is mounting. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. We continue our study of the book of James. We begin in chapter five today with a message called Living in Light of the Lord's Return. And Jonathan, uh, you nailed it. Uh, I think that culture really does look at Christians with great skepticism, even disdain. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think it comes from the fact that when we turn to Christ and we place our trust in him, we are, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son, whom the Father loves. And when we become part of his kingdom, we are given a totally new worldview, a different understanding of ourselves, a different understanding of sin and righteousness, a different outlook for the future. You know, our worldview is fundamentally changed. And it's, it's no great surprise that that should sometimes create a tension between believers and the surrounding culture. I think in a way, as Christians in the West, we've been living in an, in an era where we've had more of an open door with the culture than has been normal throughout Christian history. And in some ways, as we see, as we see the difference more starkly and we feel the tension a little bit more acutely, maybe that's, that's returning us a little bit more to what it was like in the New Testament era. And the Word of God equips us to live in such an environment, and we're going to see that here in James chapter 5. Well, you heard where we're going to be, so grab your Bible and join us in James 5. We're looking at the first 12 verses today as we begin our message, Living in Light of the Lord's Return. Here is Jonathan. How should we as Christians face the reality of suffering in this world? How should we walk through times of difficulty, of opposition, and in particular through seasons of mistreatment at the hand of unbelievers? How should we approach these things? How should we endure them in a godly way? What is our biblical mandate? What is the Christ-like pattern? The believers James addressed in his letter knew what it was to suffer mistreatment and injustice. Evidently, many people in this particular church were not terribly well off in economic terms, and the rich in the community had been mistreating the fellowship of believers as a whole. That's what we learn from chapter 2 and verse 6, where James asks, are not the rich, the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Presumably, these rich of whom James speaks are the landowners who employ many of the manual laborers in agriculture in that region. Our, our passage here in chapter 5 speaks of the laborers who mow the fields, not receiving their pay. These, these landowners would have been people, we guess, of influence and power with the capacity to make life tough for the average person, for the laborer who served them. And evidently there was pressure upon the believers. 
Now, James wants to call them to face this trial in a posture of faith and of faithfulness. But you'll notice that he begins chapter 5 by announcing a word of warning, really a word of condemnation to the rich oppressors. He's making a kind of prophetic announcement of judgment, not expecting necessarily that they're within earshot of the word of God in the fellowship on the Sunday morning. It's as though James is in the the pulpit and for a few moments he raises his voice and speaks over the heads of the gathered people of God, over the heads of the congregation, and casts his voice out the door and into the town square outside and addresses the unbelievers who have dared oppress the people of God. Now, of course, James is saying these things for the sake of the believers who are listening to the word. They need the comfort of God's concern and care for them. They need the promise of justice. The Old Testament prophets, you you may remember, sometimes did this, announcing judgment upon the nations in their oracles, but doing so really for the benefit of the people of God. And I think that's the case here. I think that's the kind of dynamic we're seeing. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. These people, they're, they're under the judgment of God. They're wealthy. That in itself isn't necessarily evil. The New Testament sometimes speaks of believers who have financial means. Earlier in James, he speaks of a rich person entering the assembly, presumably to join in worship. Being wealthy is not necessarily in itself an evil thing, but these wealthy landowners are abusing and defrauding their workers in order to gather up so much wealth for themselves that they aren't even able to use it. They are mistreating the poor to hoard wealth that then goes to waste. The whole picture is obscene in its essence. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 4, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Now, we call to mind the agricultural workers of our own day, many who migrate from their homeland, from their own country, to work for subsistence wages during the harvest season, living in basic conditions, laboring in the heat of the day. Now, it's one thing to do that. It's no easy thing to do that. But then to do all that and not be paid to have wages withheld, that is sheer wickedness. Wages of the working poor have been held back by fraud, and then this fraud has been used to fund an opulent lifestyle, even the accumulation of wealth that can't even be used. Back in chapter 2 and verse 6, we we learned how the rich were dragging the believers into court. And here we see the echo of that again. The rich landowners, we surmise, were using their influence in the courts to get out of paying the poor, paying their workers. Maybe they were using the courts actually to grab hold of ownership of more land, maybe stealing it out from under the less powerful in the community whether literally with the sword or figuratively through economic oppression, these rich people, verse 5, were murdering the righteous. 
It's a very ugly situation of real suffering. And James is going to spend the rest of our passage teaching the believers how to respond to it. That's where we're going in just a moment. But before we go there and before we get there, I think we need to pause and together take a sober look at this portrait of the godless rich, the people whom James says, well, they need to weep and howl for the miseries that will come upon them in the judgment of God. We need to look at that portrait and we need to take warning from it. The Bible is clear to us that riches bring spiritual danger. And the truth of the matter is that living in the wealthy West, we are on average a wealthy people. Some more than others, no doubt. And of course, there will be some among us who are facing real economic hardship at the present time, and we don't want to minimize that. But many of us will count as rich by global standards, not as the poor, as many of James's first readers were. And this ugly portrait of the oppressive rich it warns us to be very, very careful with riches. Careful that we treat fairly those who may work for us if we have people who work for us. Those with whom we do business as we all do business with others. Those whose services we use. Do we compensate them appropriately? Do we treat them well? Do we pay our bills in faithfulness? Are we guilty of accumulating wastefully while others are in need, allowing our accumulation of wealth to sit and to rot unused while we live, James says, in the last days, that is in the final era of salvation history before the Lord Jesus returns for the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies. I think this portrait of wickedness challenges us to consider these things deeply. It's it's not sinful in and of itself to have means. It's not wrong to enjoy the Lord's gifts, but it is evil to mistreat others economically. It's ungodly to hoard things that we cannot use. And it's unfitting to live in luxurious self-indulgence, spending without restraint upon ourselves as we await the coming of the Lord. You see, time is short. The needs of the work of the gospel press upon us. And, and we know, if we understand the gospel, we know that this world is not our true and our lasting home. Do our lives, yours and mine, reflect the belief that Jesus is going to return and that we will have to give an account to him? From that very ugly portrait, where is the challenge for you and the challenge for me? Now, that's an important side note in a sense, but now the main focus is on how we respond to pressure, to suffering, and to trial. The believers of James's day were under pressure from the ungodly. For them, the pressure was social and economic, and, and that right there, that might strike a chord for you personally because you've suffered economically at the hands of the ungodly. Maybe you've had an employer or a customer who has defrauded you. Maybe you've suffered because of that. I know some among us actually have faced situations of that kind. And so the resonance here for you will be quite specific. This is personal. It hits close to home. 
For many, the kinds of pressure you face from unbelievers, from society around, it's different, but you would say, yes, there is pressure. The reality is that as Christians, we're entering, we're actually already occupying a new kind of cultural space within our society. We're coming to realize that we are viewed as believers more and more with skepticism, even hatred for holding to the Word of God and proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, the pressure is mounting. The culture is morphing. The laws are changing. We, we all feel it. We all know it. And it's impacting all of us in different ways. Some among us are finding it harder and harder each year to operate within the workplace. Living with integrity as a Christian is becoming almost impossible in your office. The demands of the employer are, are coming now into direct conflict with your faith. Students are under huge pressure at school to learn and then to affirm a worldview that runs completely contrary to the Word of God. Friendships in the community are just getting harder to navigate because your ethics and your values, they're so very different from your neighbors. We hear and receive more hateful sentiments and words spoken against us as believers. I'm, I'm seeing direct words of hostility and even hatred directed toward Christian leaders and pastors and ministries today in a way that I couldn't have imagined 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, our situation has changed, friends. Now, none of this should be a great shock to us. The New Testament gives us ample warning. But how are believers in any age, in James's age, in our age today, to respond to pressure from those around us, to trial, to difficulty, to suffering, however those things may come? Well, what a question to have to hit the pause button on. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and Jonathan will be back in just a moment to address that question, so I hope you'll stay with us. Our message today is called Living in Land of the Lord's Return, part of our study of the book of James. Our series is called Doers of the Word, and if you've missed any of the broadcasts in this series, you can come and visit our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You can download an MP3 for free, or you can stream the program through your computer or mobile device. And if you want to find out more about Encounter the Truth, the website's a great place to go. Also, if you want to find out a little bit more about the book we've been talking about this month, Know Your Enemy, and how you can get a copy by supporting the ministry with a gift of any amount, visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also give a gift over the phone and request a copy of Know Your Enemy. Our phone number is 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's one 833 998-7884. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. How are believers in any age, in James's age, in our age today, to respond to pressure from those around us, to trial, to difficulty, to suffering, however those things may come? Well, James has two specific instructions for us, and the first one is this. It's very simple. Be patient. Be patient, says James, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When things are not right, when there's a situation where people are being wronged, where there is hurt and cost and suffering, where there's no easy fix, when there is injustice and the courts are rigged, there is actually just one thing really for the people of God to do, and it's this, it is to wait. It is to wait upon the Lord to set things right in his time and in his way. And in many instances, that is where the people of God find themselves simply waiting. The promise of God, the promise of the word is that the Lord Jesus will return. He will return and he will gather his people, the people he died at Calvary to redeem, the people whom he loves and the people whom he treasures and he will judge the world at the final day. There will be a rescue for the people of God and there will be a great reckoning for the enemies of God. All the wrongs that have been done on this earth will come under judgment. There will be a punishment for evil. There will be a vindication for the righteous in Christ. You see, the coming of the Lord Jesus, his return, it is our great hope and it is our great comfort. It is our hope that things will be made right. It is our assurance and our guarantee that evil actually matters to the God of all the universe. He sees it. He will address it. That's his promise. But it's not yet. It is at hand to use James's phrase. We don't know precisely when. It might be later today. Maybe it will. It might, it might be tomorrow. It, it might be next week. It might be next month. It might be next year. We don't know when the Lord may come, but he will come. And his return is our great hope. Waiting is a key activity, a key function, a key skill of the Christian believer See, the, the unbeliever looks for the fulfillment of all his or her hopes and aspirations and dreams in this life and in this world. That's the mantra of the, the wicked wealthy in the previous verses. All pleasure is to be found in this life. You know, I'm going to grab all I can. I'm going to squeeze every ounce of self-indulgence possible out of this life because this life is all there is. Now, it's the wrong worldview, but it is internally cohesive and coherent. You can understand why someone who has no belief in God might behave like that. But it's not the believer's way. For the believer, no, we know something about hoping for the future and waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God. The believer understands something about that kind of gospel patience. It's like the farmer, James tells us. The farmer's work and the farmer's life is so much about waiting. Some of you know agriculture and you know about this. Waiting until it's time to till the ground, to sow the seed, then waiting for the rains to come and water the ground and cause the seed to germinate, and then waiting for the seed to grow and for the rains to come again and for the harvest to be ready. Much of the year is about waiting. It's an active waiting, a lot of work involved, but it all takes time. You can't rush it. There are forces at work and factors at play that are entirely beyond your control. And so you wait and you wait and you wait. And as Christians, we need to learn to wait for the outworking of the plans and the purposes of God. We need to learn that in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of seasons. But we need to learn it, I think, very, very specially in times of 
pressure of suffering, of trial, of difficulty. You see, we can only endure, we can only manage, we can only actually survive if we know and believe that the Lord Jesus is coming back, that he's going to return for us, that he's going to vindicate us, that he's going to rescue us, that he's going to call the wicked to account. The triumph of evil in this world, the success of the oppressor, the prosperity of the wicked, the celebration of evil, the things that we see all around us that so distress us, they are only very short-lived in the grand scheme of things. The Lord sees evil. He takes note of evil and he commits to address evil. That's why the wealthy oppressor, verse 1, needs to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's, that's the reason they face the very judgment of God and so will anyone who would oppress the people of God, who would persecute the people of God, who would mistreat them and who will not repent. And for us, we may face mistreatment, we may face opposition, we may even face persecution and we need to keep this truth in mind. We need to be patient for the coming of the Lord. We're living in days when the church of Jesus Christ is not simply seen as quaint or antiquated as it once was. We're living in days when the church of Jesus Christ is seen by many now as an obstacle to a new view of humanity, a new understanding of personhood and identity, a new kind of liberation a new model of society. Many see us as the problem. Many see the Word of God as espousing something that is not merely strange, but outright evil. And if we don't believe that persecution could come our way, as it has come to so many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world, if we don't believe that, I think we're terribly naive. How will we face that? How must we face it, James says, with patience? We need in particular, says James, to establish our hearts. Verse 8, establish them in the gospel, in our trust in the Lord, in our security in Him, in our confidence in the promises of His Word. We need to set our hearts immovably on the rock of the promises of the Word of God. We need to fix them there, and then we need to wait. Be patient. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, a message called Living in Light of the Lord's Return. Now, we're going to pause right here, but we'll continue this message next time. This message is part of a larger series from the book of James. We're calling it Doers of the Word. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series, you can come and you can listen online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen to this program on the go if you have the Encounter the Truth app. You can find it at your favorite app store. Just look for Encounter the Truth. Well, Encounter the Truth is able to stay on this station and online because of your generosity. It is your giving that makes it all possible. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Know Your Enemy. And Jonathan, I think often we may recognize the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. But being a spiritual battle, sometimes it can be a struggle to know how to fight. And I think that's what this book addresses, isn't it? 
Well, that's exactly right. The aim of this book is to help us to have an understanding of the nature of the battle and the nature of our enemy so that we can fight the battle effectively in the Lord's strength. This isn't something I think that we give a lot of thought to, perhaps, uh, naturally. Maybe we don't hear a whole lot of teaching on this, but it's such an important topic because the Bible's so clear that there is an enemy of the Lord's who is an enemy of his people. And if we belong to the Lord Jesus, in a sense, we've got a target on our back. Mercifully and wonderfully, the Lord Jesus is more powerful than the enemy who seeks to undermine his work. But we need to have an understanding of what's going on so that we can flee to Christ, so that we can find help from his word and the strength of his spirit, that we might uh, resist the devil and then find that he will flee from us, which is the promise of, of God's word for us. But I think this book will be a tremendous help and a tremendous encouragement within that fight. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thanks for your support this month. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and our phone number is 833-998-7884. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.